0: Our scripture today is Luke 1, 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. You know, I have been a dad for for nearly 13 years and and a husband for over 17. And uh, one thing I've learned over these years is that, you know, it's not that hard to save the day sometimes, you know? It's not that hard. Uh, The other day, uh, I had an opportunity to save the day for Reese. I don't even know if she remembers, wherever she is. Uh, But we, uh, we, we went to school, dropped her off, and I leave the parking lot, and guess what? She had left a book that she needed that day in the car, and I caught it and I ran it back in, gave it to her, day saved, right? All right, in that moment, just handing that book over, saving the day one book at a time. You know, later this week, uh, I was texting Elise, you know, she's tired, she's dragging at work, I said, hey, I could bring you a cup of coffee. Drive by, she walks out, hand a cup of coffee, guess what? Save the day, right? It's that easy. That's all it takes to save the day. You know what, husbands? Just start the dishwasher before you leave. And when you come home from work, pal, clean dishes, right? Day saved. It's really pretty easy uh, to save the day. But, you know, sometimes we save the day in little ways. But sometimes days are saved in huge ways. Uh, in our family, this is a, a reference point we make all the time, um, but um, when when Jim Tunnell, I don't remember how many guys remember Jim Tunnell, he used to go to church here, he passed away a few years ago, uh, when, when Jim Tunnell was in the nursing home, I went to go visit him, and his nurse looked at me, and she recognized me, she said, I know you, and I said, you do, she said, I saved your daughter's life, she said, I said, you did? She said, yeah, I'm the one who did CPR on your daughter. And I was like, are you kidding me? You know, gave her a big hug, thanked her. She did more than save the day, right? She saved decades for my daughter, right? And decades of pain for me and Elise. That's some next level saving the day, right? Okay, so in any of these situations, when somebody saves the day, whether it's something small like a cup of coffee or remembering your daughter's book, right? What's it do? It it puts a smile on your face, right? Well, this was 10 years ago that I'd seen this, hadn't seen this woman, and uh, when I saw her and she told me what she'd done, what did it do? It put a smile on my face. The other day, I was scrolling through my phone and found the picture that I took of this woman who saved my daughter's life, and that, I I was just like, hey, this is, I can't remember her name. I'm a terrible person, but this is her. This is the one. She, like, it brought me joy. It brought me happiness all over again. No matter the case, being small or big, when somebody saves the day, it is a happy thing. Can I get an amen? amen. All right, today we are continuing our journey through the book of Luke. And so we started in Luke a couple weeks ago, and today we're going to uh, kind of do a survey. We're going we're gonna to step back and look over the first two chapters of Luke. And as we look at these first two chapters of Luke, we're going to see something. That Jesus is continually described as a Savior, or that the Savior is coming, or the Redeemer is coming, or the one who is going to make things right is coming. And each time we see this throughout the first two chapters of Luke, what do you think the people's response is? Uh, yeah, you know. No big deal, right? No, they are excited, they're happy, they're joyful, and we see these expressions of joy all throughout the first two chapters of Luke. It's almost like, Oprah, you get a story of joy, you get a story of joy, you get a story of joy. And as you move through the first two chapters of Luke, we see this over and over again. And so we're going to look at six stories of joy, and we're going to fly through them, okay? Okay. Six stories of joy just in the first two chapters of Luke. We're going to see it with Zachariah. We're going to see it with his wife Elizabeth. We're going to see it with Mary. We're going to see it with the shepherds. We're going to see it with Simeon, and we're going to see it with Anna. Each one of these expresses joy, happiness, praise, gladness, blessing of God in some way when they receive news of salvation. Salvation. So let's go ahead and jump in here and begin to uh, tackle this. Uh, We're going to look first at the story of Zechariah. Now, for time's sake, we don't have an opportunity to go back and recap where we've been over the last several weeks. But Zechariah, if you'll remember, is John the Baptist's dad. Okay, Uh, And so he and Elizabeth, his wife... Uh, were old and unable to have children. However, an angel of the Lord came and told Zechariah that he was going to have a son, and his son was going to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. But if you'll remember, Zechariah had his doubts, and in his doubts, the angel struck him mute. And I joked, as kind of a sign that the uh, angel was telling him, no, this is really going to happen. All right, and so the, the angel told him that this, his son was going to come and that he should name his baby John. Now, uh, after uh, we move through the book, we get down to verse 62. Uh, listen to the exchange that went on around uh, John being born. So we'll pick up in Luke chapter 1, verse 62. It says, and they made signs to his father. All right, so who's the they? That's just friends and family who were gathered there after John, uh, John the Baptist was born. So, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God and fear came on all their neighbors and all things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Okay, so when Zechariah's baby is born, what is his response? How does he react when his son is born? All right, verse 64 says that he spoke blessings to God. His first response, his first response was joy and praising God. So his mouth had been shut, For nine or ten months, finally his baby is born. And when his baby's born, what does he do? He praises God. He expresses joy and thanksgiving as he had experienced this wonderful promise. But then the Spirit moved, and Zechariah began to prophesy about his son. So here's what I want you to think what's his response? He's received this good news, his son has been born. We see gladness, we see praise. And then what's his response? What does this prophecy say? So let's look at several verses here and I want you to pay attention to what Zechariah has to say. It says this. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, "Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, and he for he has visited and what redeemed his people and raised up a horn of what salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by mouth of his holy prophet from, uh, from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we might, being delivered that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then what's he say? Now he's he's directing this directly at John the Baptist. And you child will be called the prophet of the most high, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of what salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadows of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. All right, so, so what's this prophecy? His son has been born, he's in gladness, and, and what does he praise God for? He praises God for his, uh, the fact that he's going to redeem his people, God is coming to redeem them. He raises the horn of salvation. He says that God is saving them from their enemies. He's remembering his promises to Abraham. And who will John be? Zechariah is praising God because his son is going to prepare the way of the Lord. His son is going to lead toward the knowledge of salvation and lead toward forgiveness. So do you see this right here, right off the bat, as we look at Zechariah, we see this response of praise, of joy, of happiness, tied to news of salvation. God is sending his salvation, and that is something to be joyful about. Now, listen to Elizabeth. We're going to go back in time to before John is born, okay, and Elizabeth has another reaction, again, that we see. I want you to see her joy and tied to uh, the news of salvation. It says this, starting in verse 39, still of chapter 1. It says, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judea, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, shows up at Zechariah and Elizabeth's house. Again, this is before John the Baptist was born. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Okay, so what, what does Elizabeth do? She gets this news, and Elizabeth declares Mary blessed. And at the end, what do we find out? That she is Blessing her because Mary believed that there would be fulfillment from the Lord. That's fulfillment of the Lord's promise to her, personally, but also fulfillment of the same thing we read from Zechariah, right? The fulfillment of the promises that were made through the prophets and to Abraham. Verse 44 tells us that the baby in Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy when uh, Mary arrived. That word joy there is to exalt in extreme joy and to have gladness. So what did this baby do? This baby inside the womb of her mother leapt for joy whenever Mary arrived. And while uh, she was filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth praised God because Mary had believed the promise that God would fulfill uh, for her. Elizabeth is praising God because the Savior had come into her home and was with her within Mary. But more than that, Elizabeth makes two declarations over Mary. First, in verse 42, Elizabeth recognizes how special Mary is. All right, so in verse 42, Elizabeth recognizes how special Mary is. She says that Mary is blessed. But in this sense, she means this. She means like a sense of praise, praise. A sense of wonder. She's recognizing that Mary has the favor of the Lord. Elizabeth can see that God is doing something special and amazing and wonderful through Mary. And so she declares her blessed. But then in verse 45, Elizabeth says that Mary is blessed again. But this time, the the word here is different. So in English, it just says blessed and blessed. But if we look down to the original language, the word behind this word blessed in verse 45 is the word happy. She says, happy are you. That's what she declares there. If you think about it, this makes sense, right? The one who has God's favor, who's exalted because of the work of God, that person is blessed in the sense that we often think of the word blessed. But also, that person should feel pretty happy, Right? She should be happy. She's carrying the Lord, the Savior of the world. That's pretty good news. That should make her happy. So Elizabeth recognizes this and says she's happy. Now Mary herself recognizes that God is doing something amazing. And Rachel read this for us earlier. She read the longer passage. So I'm just going to cherry pick a couple words out of it. But how does that that, that passage that uh, was read for us earlier begin? It says this. So this is Mary speaking. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. All right, in God her what? Savior. Are you seeing this connection to God fulfilling His promises, to God redeeming, to God saving? And what happens? And As, as this is known, we see people rejoicing. So she praises God. She magnifies the Lord. And her spirit rejoices because her Savior has come. She goes on to praise him for all the great things God has done, like lowering the proud and exalting the humble. And she praises him for helping Israel and praises God for remembering the promises that he made to Abraham. All right, all these connections keep coming up. Now, we're only in chapter 1. And I said we're going to to survey chapter 1 and chapter 2. We're through three of the six different expressions of joy, happiness, gladness that are tied to news of salvation. All right, so we're going to go to one of the most famous passages in the Christmas story. It's the one that I think of when I think of uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, when, when Linus is, is, is reading the Christmas story. All right, so we'll, we'll pick up in uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 9. And it says this, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Who did the angel appear to? That's the shepherds in the fields. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great what? Of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a... Savior, who is Christ the Lord. All right, so what kind of news is this? This is news of great joy, of great joy. All right, and what's the news? A Savior has been born. Are we seeing this pattern? The coming of a Savior is a joyful thing. But there's still more. Let's move through these next few passages quickly. All right, so uh, Jesus, after he's born, he's presented in the temple. And this was a normal thing for the firstborn to be presented uh, in a way similar to this uh, in the temple. So when it was time for this ritual pur- purification, they went up to the temple and they were met by a man named Simeon. And this is the story of Simeon. We'll pick up in verse uh, twenty-five of chapter two. It says, "Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this was a righteous and and this man was righteous and devout." Waiting for the consolation of Israel. All right, so what's consolation of Israel? That is a comforting that comes from the coming of the Messiah. Okay, a comforting that comes from the coming of Messiah. So what had he been waiting for? The coming of a Savior. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took took him up in his arms and blessed God, all right? That's that same word, blessed, that is to praise. He praised God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What it is I see Jesus, the baby, his eyes had seen his his salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He saw Jesus' salvation, and his response was to bless God or to praise the name of God. Now, this is verse 32. If we just skip down a few verses to verse 38, there's another woman in the temple. Her name is Anna. She's a prophetess, and she has a similar reaction, and we're just going to read one verse here. It says this in verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she, Anna, began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So what do we see? She's again, she's praising God. She's telling everyone about the redemption of Israel that's about to come. So we did it. We made it through all six. Okay, we got through there. Now what do we see then from the beginning of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 2, the birth, well, it's not quite the end of chapter 2, the middle of chapter 2, the birth of Jesus. What do we see? We see salvation, and we see joy, happiness, blessing, We see praise, thanksgiving, all associated with what? News of salvation. All right, so as we've moved through these birth stories, all right, I hope you guys have been able to to make these connections, all right, this direct relationship between salvation, joy, gladness, happiness, praise, and thankfulness. Okay, now we're going to change gears. I needed to set the scene. I needed to paint this picture for you uh, so that you could begin to get your head around where I'm going. Okay, so I, I hope we've laid that foundation. All right. Now, we as the church know and have experienced this salvation, the salvation that Jesus Christ provides through the forgiveness of our sins and being made right with our Creator. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, that one who's born, because of his sacrifice, we have peace with God. God showed his love for us by laying down his life for us. All right, By going to the cross, he showed us just how much he loved us. The creator of the universe who had every right to destroy us because we're his enemies. Because we were lost in our sin. Yet instead of doing what we deserved through justice, He showed us grace and mercy by extending us love through the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is good news, right? This is news that should brighten every day, right? This news should brighten every day. Earlier I talked about happiness and joy we feel when somebody saves the day, The joy we feel, the happiness we feel when we get a well-timed cup of coffee. The joy we feel when somebody makes up for our mistake. The joy we feel when someone saves a life, right? They save a day, they save a moment, they save a lifetime. Yet Jesus Christ has come to save an eternity. He's come to save an eternity for all who believe. And that should bring joy. That should bring gladness, that should bring happiness. We should be a people of praise. And yet, I look around and I think about this Are we, as the people of God, any happier than anyone else? And are we any happier than anyone else? Now, as I read the Christmas story for the 10,000th the time, I just couldn't help but see all the joy all over this passage. What do we sing every Christmas? Joy to the world, the Lord has come, right? But, but are we a joyful people? Are you, I'll look at the monitor. Are you a joyful person? I don't want anybody to think I'm singling them out, but maybe I am. I don't know. You know that's between you and the spirit, right? Are you a joyful joyful person? I had to ask myself, am I a joyful person? Now listen, this weekend, oh, my mother-in-law's laughing. My wife is laughing. All right, so this weekend, we went camping. Camping is not my favorite. Uh, and I got to tell you, I, I laughed, Elise and I laughed to each other because I kept thinking, all right, where, how does this fit into the sermon this week? Because I was grumpy a lot. And I tried not to be. I tried to put a happy face on it, but I was grumpy a lot. And the Lord just kept saying, the joy of your salvation, the joy of your salvation, right? And like I'm like, <laughs> Right. All right, we can do this, right? Am I a joyful person? Am I a happy person? And here's what I know: when I'm focused on the right things, when my heart is in the right place, I sure as the world have an opportunity to be a happy person. But I think I think we do this thing as followers of Jesus. I think we do this thing as American Christians. I think I think we've come to believe a lie. And uh, I'm going to take a rather controversial uh, position here, and it might aggravate a few of you. Okay, so it's my hope um, as I as I go through this that you will hear what I'm saying and you will allow it, allow the Spirit just to challenge your presuppositions here. Okay, I think I think we have begun to believe a lie. So here's my controversial position: I think joy and the expression of happiness are far more related than we want to believe. Joy and expressions of happiness are far more related than we want to believe. Let me explain what I mean, okay? Uh, I think we have accepted a lie uh, that says we can be joyful, but we don't have to be happy, right? And as I shared this with Steve, Steve, I'm going to share what you you shared earlier. Uh, We were talking about this, Steve goes, I have the joy of the Lord, but I'm just not feeling very happy right now. You know, and like, that's what we do, right? We, we talk about it in terms of this disassociation. I have joy, but I'm a jerk, right? A joyful jerk, right? I have joy, but I'm really mean. I have joy, but I'm a mope, right? Okay, and, and I just, I think about that, and that math is bad. Right? That math is bad. And when I think about the way this is unpacked, the way that we see these people focus on the joy of their salvation, we see expressions of happiness and gladness. And and here's where I'm going to go today, and I'm getting a little off my notes, so hopefully I can get back on it. Uh, I think what we do is we try to cover our sins, and we make excuses, okay? When, When we're down... When we're mad, when we're sad, when we're angry, we disassociate from the joy of our salvation so we can justify these other sins that we have in our life. We know we should be joyful, and if we would focus on the joy of our salvation, then, then probably the Lord's convicting would stir up those sins in our life and lead us to confession and repentance. But instead, we disassociate. And we say, I have the joy, I have the joy of salvation, I have the joy of the Lord, right? While we're still basking in and rolling in the hardness of heart that comes from walking in our sin. So I have thought about this for a long time. I think in my past, I have united this idea of, or uh, divided the idea of joy and happiness. But the more and more I thought about this, that we would not apply this in other areas of our life. Let me see if I can share with you what I mean here. And this kind of logic doesn't, doesn't compute in other areas of our life. And, and let's see if, if, if I can help, help you guys out. Alright. So I shared earlier that Elise and I have been married for over 17 years. If you count dating life, we have been together for over 20 years. Right? That's over half of our life that we have been together. Okay. Now, People will tell you that you should have joy, right, in your marriage. Like the Lord, I think that there's even passages in scripture that talk about how your marriage is to be a delight. It is a good thing. It is a gift. I believe God wants us to be happy in our marriages. But what's some of the advice that you get from people, right? Like, you're not always going to be happy in your marriage, right? So if you're giving a newlywed advice, you'll say something like some days are harder than others, right? Some days you don't like your spouse very much, right? At least in 17 years of marriage, have we liked each other every day? I want to say yes, right? Uh, the answer is no, right? We have not liked each other every day. Uh, some, days, some days, love is more of a choice than it is a feeling, right? I think most of us who have been married any length of time can relate to that, that like, all right, today, I'm going to have the joy of the Lord, <laughs> right, right? Today, I'm going to choose to be married even though right? But is that what God intends? Is that what's supposed to happen in a relationship? Should you be gutting it out in your relationship with your spouse? And I'm going to tell you this, the answer is no. You're not supposed to be gutting it out with your your spouse. So when we feel that, ugh, I don't really, I'm choosing to be married today. I don't like you very much today. What does that do? That should be a red flag, right? That should be a red flag in your marriage that something isn't right. And when that red flag goes up, what do you have to do? You have to go to your spouse, and you have to apologize. You have to repent. You have to do what is necessary to fix it, to restore the joy and the sweetness of the relationship. The, the conflict, the lack of feeling, is a warning sign that something isn't right. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So when do we feel that way sometimes? Yes, because at the end of the day, we are two sinful people who are married to each other, who some days we'd rather just roll around in our sin, all right, and get on each other's nerves, than do the work that's required to have a healthy, vibrant, joyful relationship But when when that friction rubs, when that warning light goes off, it's time to do the work of repentance so that the relationship is restored. In a similar way, I'm arguing this. When we find ourselves spiritually grouchy, when we find ourselves missing the joy of our salvation it may very well be an indicator of sin in our lives. That when we feel grouchy, when we feel terrible, when we feel angry, it may very well be because you need to confess some things to the Lord. Several years ago, um, I I personally was in a bad spot. Uh, I, I was angry. I can remember saying to Elise on multiple occasions, I'm just angry every day, all the time. I don't even know what I'm mad about. I'm just mad. And this went on close to a year, nine months, just being angry and frustrated. And I I can't go into all the details around this, but but here's what I can tell you. Uh, Elise and I had a chance to go away and spend some time in prayer, and uh, what what I had realized is that that through this situation, I had made everything about me. I wasn't getting what I wanted. I wasn't getting the answers I thought I should get. Things weren't happening in the timing that I thought I should get, and everything was I I I me me me. So, and and while we were away, you know what, you know what the Lord showed us is that God is faithful. He doesn't operate in my timing, he doesn't operate with the, the, the circumstances that I would plan and plot. And and he he told me, All right, listen, it is time to trust me. And you gotta quit trying to control everything on your own. And it was a wonderful time of repentance. And, and can I tell you? That from, from that time forward, moving through those circumstances, that, that confession and repentance changed things. And in many ways, the, the joy of my salvation was restored. And I want to share this to you, with you guys from, from Psalm 51. Psalm 51. David had been lost in his sin, he'd been caught up in pursuing his own desires. He had gotten very selfish. And when he's confronted with the reality of his sin, he wrote Psalm 51 as a psalm of confession and repentance. And we're going to jump right in here to verse 7 through 12 and jump in the middle of this psalm. And I want you to see his language. David says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What does David do in Psalm 51? He links joy and gladness to repentance and salvation. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. What's he saying there? Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Think about that. As he's experiencing the fullness of his sin, he's broken by the sin. He's grieved by what he's experienced. And he says, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Help me remember who I am in you. What you've done for me, what you've called me. He speaks repentance here. He's turning from it. And walking forward in the joy of his salvation. Church, what I want you to hear is, God wants you to be happy. Now, we've been conditioned. I've taught against the prosperity gospel from this pulpit. We've been conditioned that God wants you not, doesn't really want you to be happy. And I just, what, I like the expression, God wants your holiness maybe more than your happiness, all right? So he is after your heart. Uh, okay, but he wants you to be happy. He really does. But he wants us to be happy and to delight in him. And when we get our eye off the ball, that's when we find ourselves in trouble. That's when we find ourselves in a world of hurt. So you can lose your job, you can lose your health, you can lose your wealth, you can even lose loved ones. But the one thing that can't be taken from you is your security and the salvation of the Lord. And that is where our hope comes from. That is what we cling to on the darkest of nights. That is where we retreat to when everything else has gone wrong. The joy of our salvation. Because all these things that we mention are temporary. Days can be saved by various little things, and days can be blown by various little things, right? But he's come to save us forever. And that's where we have to go on our dark days. That's where we have to retreat to when we're sad. And as I thought about this, I want you guys to know that like three or four pages got cut out of my notes. And uh, as I thought about this earlier this week, I'm like, you know what we got to do? We got to talk about joy in the middle of salvation while uh, just talking about it big picture that God has called us to, to focus on the joy of our salvation and that we should be happy people. And then next week, you know what we're going to do? We're going to look about how God still calls us to do hard things. And next week, we're going to talk about joy and suffering, okay? So today is the easy one, right? Where, hey, all right, be joyful. We're saved. Next week, we're going to get into the yeah buts, okay? So all you see who are sitting there and you're going, yeah, but, all right, come back next week and, and we'll, we'll talk about those. Okay, here's what I want you guys to see. God is our Savior. Now, I want you to think about this. When we think about uh, our faith in Jesus Christ, we talk about it as a growing process. We're becoming more and more like him. There is uh, what we're going to be when we're glorified in eternity. Uh, more and more of that is happening in our lives as we're following Jesus. We call that sanctification. We're being made holy. We're being conformed to his image. So that means what's going to happen in eternity, more of that should be happening now as in this life, all right? all right? Ultimately, we'll be glorified in the end, but we should be walking more and more as the Holy Spirit changes us to be more and more like that. I want to read what's become one of my favorite passages. I read it all the time because it helps us set our eyes on the eternal. I want you to think about how God is Savior and how no matter what you've been through, if you're following Him, He's going to save you. This whole world is going to be remade. I want you to listen to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. All right, sometimes we think about our salvation as needing to be in this moment, but the promise isn't always that it will be saved in the moment. It's that it will be saved for eternity. So listen to this from Revelation 21. This is the end, okay, the end of of the world. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now what's he do in verse 4? For eternity... What's he do in verse 4? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The joy of our salvation is eternal. One day, all the mourning, all the pain, all the sorrow will be wiped away what I want you guys to see is the joy of our salvation is a taste of that in this life. And when we find ourselves joyless, we should ask ourselves, am I remembering the joy of my salvation? Where's my hope? Is my hope in this moment? Or is my hope in eternity? Am I waiting for my day to be saved? But am I forgetting that I have been saved for eternity? That's my challenge to you guys today. I want to encourage you to come back next week as we unpack the harder side of this, the more challenging, the yeah, but side of this. So uh, I, I look forward to you guys coming back. Would you, would you pray with me? And then I, I can't wait to, to go where we're, we're headed next. Father, we thank you that you are our salvation. You love us. You care for us. You sent your son to die for us. Help us to latch onto that, to what you've done. Help us to cling to you as the joy of our salvation. Lord, when when we find it hard, when we find it hard to be joyful and happy, I pray, Lord, that that would be a warning sign in our lives, that we confess our needs before you, we recognize our sin, and we confess our sin, and we would repent of those things that are keeping us from joy, and we would cling to the one thing that remains, your saving grace and mercy. We love you, Lord. Amen. As I was thinking through today's message and the way to end, Lord's Supper is the perfect way to end. It is a remembering of what the Lord has done for us what Jesus has done in his sacrifice for us. The early church used to call this the Eucharist. The word Eucharist is this idea of thanksgiving, of being thankful. This is an opportunity for us to be thankful for what Jesus had done. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about taking the Lord's Supper whenever we take it in a worthy manner as we think about what it is to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, I think it means two things. And we've talked about them both today. One is thanksgiving, is the joy of remembering what God has done and thanking Him for hanging on a tree, bearing our sin and shame, dying for us and raising from the dead. So it is being thankful, but it's also coming to Him with a repentant heart, remembering what God has done, and confessing our sin before Him and repenting of our sin and walking forward in obedience. So, as we take communion today, I pray that it will, as we, we want to take it in a worthy manner, as we sing this song, our hearts would be moved toward repentance of any unconfessed sin in our life, and our hearts would be turned toward joy and gladness and thanksgiving. So, as Praise Team sings this song, Uh, We'll just be dismissed to the tables in the back of the room and uh, in the back of the the balcony there. And uh, everybody will just take a a wafer and a juice back to your seat. And then when we finish the song, we will all take uh, the Lord's Supper together. Adam, would you lead us in worship?